You're listening to Soundbite, the podcast that's food for your ears. I'm Celine Roberts. Last Friday, I escaped the city to Chatham's Eden Hall campus, tucked away in the rolling North Hills. I went to attend a lecture on the emotional geography of biodiversity, given by Simran Saiti. Saiti is a journalist and educator focused on food, sustainability, and social change. She has spent years traveling the world interviewing farmers, brewers, winemakers, bakers, and scientists in pursuit of discovering the importance of biodiversity to deliciousness and the well-being of our food system. Her book, Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love, follows that journey. I sat down with Simran to learn more about how biodiversity shapes our diets. My name is Simran Sethi. I'm a journalist and an educator and the author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. When you say loss, what do you mean by that? Unbeknownst to most of us, and before I started researching and writing this book, that included me, that the most delicious and diverse varieties of the foods we eat are disappearing. I told the story of the loss of agricultural biodiversity through bread, wine, coffee, chocolate, and beer. But the story extends to every food and drink that we consume. It's a loss of diversity in the soil and the microbes in the soil. It's the loss of diversity in seeds, in pollinators, in plants, in animals, in fish, in every link of the food chain. And the reason this is important is as we move toward what researchers are calling now the global standard diet, a diet that looks the same in most places in the world, we're losing diversity and resilience in the kinds of varieties of foods that we grow. And that means that we're losing a backup system that we might need in the future. So what you're talking about sounds like the downside of globalization as it is applied to foods. As we're seeing more shipping from country to country, more interaction from country to country, it tends to be easier for everything to meld into one big pot, which in some ways can be really beautiful, but in other ways can cause blight and plague and famine. Can you give us some historical examples of this happening and maybe reflect on to how if we don't change the way we eat, that might affect us in the future? Mm-hmm. I'm hearing two different questions here. What are the reasons that we lose biodiversity in food? And one of those drivers certainly is globalization. In a globalized world, foods, goods of all types, are shipped from place to place without a lot of maybe oversight or without an extended relationship toward the people who grow it. So, for example, if my cocoa comes from Ecuador, do I have a relationship with it? Do I have a relationship with the land on which those cocoa plants are grown, the farmers that cultivate that crop? You know, the short answer is no, I don't. So as those chains get stretched, those food chains, it becomes harder for me to feel that deep connection. In addition to that, what's happening is a real, I would say, oversight or a disregard for the historical data that tells us when we grow foods in monoculture. So that's really a reflection of what I would say industrialization is, that we are really compromising our food system. And the historical examples we have of that are the Irish potato famine, where one-eighth of the population died when a single fungus wiped out a significant portion of the potato crop. Now, of course, this is combined not only 
with you know agricultural factors like disease, but also with the political forces that are going on at any given time. But we see this happening again and again. Not only was it the Irish potato famine, this happened with another disease that affected grape plants uh, called phylloxera that resulted in what's known as the great wine blight that occurred in France and, and throughout Western Europe and affected, you know, again, the majority of grapes that were grown for wine. The root stock of those plants was then subsequently replaced with stock that was growing in the United States. So um, it was quite coincidental and, and I guess wonderful in some ways that we were able to utilize these porous borders and say, you know, the variety of this crop, of this grape that's grown in the United States can actually benefit, you know, and help support the loss of these plants in Europe. But you look to Latin America and we see in Guatemala and Honduras a declaration of a state of emergency as a result of another kind of disease that has felled the coffee crop there. So that what we're seeing is this kind of slow loss throughout the world, and in large part, a result of a loss of accountability for how things are grown in far-flung places, but also a demand for sameness, a demand that an industrialized system kind of calls for, which is highest yield at whatever cost. And what that means is a lot of these crops are now being grown in monoculture in ways that depletes the resilience. When you grow something with other crops, you're able to manage what some of the loss might be because there's another crop that might be able to actually compensate for a disease that comes in or a pest infestation. But what we also do is grow diverse varieties of these crops historically. But now what we're seeing in this industrialized system is grow one variety in monoculture so you can apply the same kind of chemical input, so you can water these plants the same way, irrigate, so you can treat them all and harvest them all at the same time. But again, when you do that, you're creating a system where one pest, one disease, the variability of climate change could wipe them all out. That's what we are increasingly moving toward in our food system. One that says this is the only way to grow food because we have to feed all these people, this growing population. But I would argue this is not the smartest way to grow food. We have terrific examples that show growing diversely is actually the way to increase food security. And of course, then there's the question of this growing population, which we generate one and a half times enough calories to feed everyone on the planet today and the population that we anticipate by 2050. So, so this is really a question of who it is that we want to be, how we want to support farmers, and how we want to sustainably and, I would say, most fruitfully feed each other. It sounds to me what you're saying is that we don't necessarily have a quantity problem. We have a execution problem in the way that we produce our foods. Would you say that's correct? We have maybe a priority problem in the sense of because we are only growing in large order for yield, we're overlooking the things that I think make food wonderful. I go to the grocery store and I shop for, well, first of all, for deliciousness and secondarily for nutritional merit. You know, I mean, that's the only reason I eat kale. It's not like... <laughs> anything that was part of my culture or something I necessarily want on my palate. But, you know, it's a powerhouse, nutritionally speaking, so I'm eating it. I reach for things for, I think, deeply personal reasons. And I think most human beings do the same thing. But the system is like, well, we're growing this for a yield. To hell with taste. You know, we're, that's not why we're creating it. So we're treating food like a widget. You know, like we've commoditized it to the point where it's interchangeable and it doesn't matter where it comes from. And origin is now something relegated to a handful of products. But I really feel like by reclaiming this and by saying, actually, I eat because I love it. I eat because it connects me back to my story, my culture, my place, that we can actually 
change what we're seeing in food. This shift that we're seeing towards hybridization and towards one size fits all and towards this global standard diet, which is largely comprised of rice, corn, soybean, and palm oil, and it's the same types in the same amounts all over the world. That's the global trend. On a local level, we might see a mango in Milwaukee, you know, or something like that. But globally speaking, we're moving towards sameness that we can say, this isn't what we want. We want something better. We want something more delicious. We want something that reflects who we are. And, you know, this has happened really in the last handful of decades. And so we really have an opportunity to turn the tide now. The most extreme versions of this have happened, I should say, in the last few decades. So to me, this is a critical moment where we can say, we choose something else. And and by doing so, we have not only supported local economies, you know, uplifted farmers, but created a more delicious life for ourselves. So, I mean, it's a win on all accounts. Why choose bread, wine, and chocolate? Bread is a staple mm-hmm. the world over. Mm-hmm. Wine and chocolate, perhaps not so much. Maybe for me or you. There we go. The book was originally all nutritional staples, so it would have been like wheat, rice, potatoes. And I was sitting in Italy. I, I spent four months there doing research at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and at a NGO, one of the largest farmer-focused NGOs looking at agricultural biodiversity called Bioversity International. And sitting in my tiny flat in Rome, trying to write this chapter on corn, boring myself for starters and then secondarily thinking you know Michael Pollan wrote the greatest chapter on corn in the omnivore's dilemma I was like I don't know what I'm gonna do how am I gonna pull off this book <laughs> you know and, and I thought at that moment I was like oh I'll sprinkle a little chocolate on top throw in a little wine for color but that was that was never gonna be the crux of the book I went back to the United States and I decided you know I mean after all these months in Italy I had been you know, drinking and eating my way through every day, I decided I would just like take a a break for a couple weeks and do a cleanse. Like, you know, no booze and no sugar or whatever, that sort of thing. And I ran into at the farmer's market, my sister's neighbor, whose husband is a chocolate maker. And I had always known that. But what I didn't know was that his background was in botany. So I thought, oh, well, this is the guy I need to talk to for my chocolate sidebar. I end up going to visit him the next day at the chocolate factory, which was then based in San Francisco in the Embarcadero, and I was on my cleanse. So, you know, he says, help yourself to, to drinking chocolate. And I say, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'll have water. And he says, we're testing out this new bar. <laughs> and I say, oh, no, I'm full, you know, of water. I'm full of water. So I, I'm <laughs> resisting. I'm just so impressed with my resistance. And, you know, this interview is only supposed to be 20 minutes, so I was going to get out of there unscathed. And it stretches to two hours. And at the end of the interview, he says, Do you want to visit the chocolate factory? I mean, chocolate has been every birthday cake, my wedding cake. It got me through my divorce. It was fueling every page of research for the book. Of course, I wanted to go to the chocolate factory. And when I get there, again, I'm just resist, resist, resist. We get to this machine that melts the the cocoa solids back into liquid form. And the smell is like, I mean, just amazing. And I touch it this machine, like it's the Lord or a lover or something. I'm just reaching for it. And he's agog. Like he takes a picture of me in this hairnet with these earplugs. I mean, I look absolutely ridiculous. And I mean, then I get on the train, you know, to go back to to the East Bay. And I realize this is what I don't want to lose. This is what fuels my life. This is what brings me joy. And so the book then became an exploration of all these foods 
maybe that people tell us to enjoy in moderation or to take out of our diet completely. And what I wanted to say is like, what we need to do is savor them. And I thought the easiest way to talk about this was through the things that had meaning for me. So chocolate, as I told you, bomb of my heart. Coffee, every day of my adult morning has started with a cup of coffee. I will think about the cup of coffee in bed at night, like, okay, that will get me through. You know, and so I wanted to speak from that place of love, a connection that transcended like this is just a beverage or this is just a food to say like these are the anchors of my life these are the things that have helped get me through these are the foods with which I've celebrated and I've mourned and I thought by forging that emotional connection that it would touch a place in people where they could do the same so I say very early on in the book these are my foods right but now map them on to whatever it is you love because even if you're a vegan teetotaler like I'm talking to you And so that's really what this was meant to do. It was meant to say, remember how deeply you love these foods. Remember how they define the best parts of your day. And now let's see why we need to hang on to them, why we need to celebrate them and save them. Particularly with chocolate and coffee, a lot of the small roasters and small producers seem to have led the charge toward knowing where your food comes from. So with fair trade in coffee shops and going down to actually meet the people who are growing the coffee beans. That seems to be something that the luxury food market, and luxury perhaps in quotes here, is a little bit more aware of. Did you find anything out about why that might be in your research? It's so interesting because if you go to any developing country, I'm of Indian origin, I've spent my whole life going to India, but you go to India, you go to South America, you go to you know anywhere in Africa and you'll see markets. You'll see open air markets where the fruits and vegetables are sold. Go to the Caribbean, like you don't have to actually go that far. We've turned it into this movement of like, farmers markets you know that are this kind of maybe precious or rarefied thing or maybe now just normal but what I think is so interesting is it's a polarized experience knowing where your food comes from is actually quite easy in a lot of these developing countries but at the same time now we see the similar trend like you said in this kind of more rarefied luxury market or specialized market so I would say, you know, some of the most intimate experiences I've had are in some of the poorest countries in the world. But at the same time, when we interpret it here in the West, it looks like it's happening through this filter of fanciness. What I say to that, because that's oftentimes when people first hear hear me talk about the book or pick up the book, they're like, oh, you're telling me to eat, you know, expensive chocolate or fancy wine or whatever. I'm saying, well, actually... I'm inviting you to look at the diversity. So it can be craft beer over Bud Light. It can be a pivot in the grocery store away from that global standard diet of wheat, rice, corn, soybean, and palm oil. The lead researcher on that project is named Colin Corey, and he said to me, it is now a radical act to choose olive oil. And I I was so stunned because when I asked him, like, what is it, what can we do? You know, I actually thought he was going to say something like, seek out, like, some esoteric squash or find an heirloom rice and felt like it was going to be a little bit of a like a tough sell then he's like choose the olive oil and I thought wow the bar is that low the opportunity is that great the continuum is that wide so pick where you are pick where you are financially pick where you are geographically pick where you are in your evolution or connection to food and go there if you are choosing craft beer over industrial beer you're taking a step in the right direction if you are 
a specialty coffee buff, go with that local roaster over a Starbucks, over a Dunkin' Donuts. Figure out where that stuff comes from because that money that you're spending on your $5 latte, move it over to the person who is making that commitment, who's going to origin and who wants you to understand those relationships and take that with you. I mean, I make very few guarantees in this world, but your experience will be a better one for those relationships, for that connection. Fair trade is, is a mechanism that is wonderful. It is an economic instrument that says, we will ensure people are paid a fair price for the work that they are doing. But those farmers, I mean, this is a structure that really, as I understand it, favors cooperatives, right? So within a certain structure, it doesn't guarantee a certain amount of money will go back to a select farmer, nor does it have anything in place that relates to the quote unquote quality of the product. So again, I reach for coffee for the flavor. I reach for chocolate for the flavor, but I had been using fair trade as a like, okay, well, this is the chocolate that's gonna be the best one. Well, you know, how are we defining best? If we're defining it as a purely economic mechanism, fair trade is achieving some of those goals, but I actually really care about flavor. So I wanna choose a model that really recognizes that as well. This emerging model of direct trade might be that solution. Direct trade is really, there's no certification behind it, which is why it's a little wonky still, but it's a real trend right now in coffee to say, we are building direct relationships with these farmers or with these cooperatives in order to create a better product, in order to pay them a fair wage. But we wanna have this trajectory of accountability that goes all the way back to the producers and extends all the way through to the consumers. I would suggest that what people do is find the few anchors of foods that they love and really start to think about where they come from. We are in an era where now more than ever, you can actually trace the provenance of the foods that you consume. You can email Nathan Miller and ask him, where does that cocoa come from? Where are you sourcing your ginger in your gingerbread, in your delicious gingerbread chocolate bar? Like where, how, what can I do to make a different set of decisions that will create a better experience, that will have a greater impact? And you know, one of the things that's most heartening to me is that the makers that I have engaged with are all of course overworked and underpaid but they're also deeply committed to these relationships so i actually think this opportunity does exist for us to ask these questions and receive answers and also i think really make decisions that serve us one of the things that i talk a lot about in the book is that i had given over my power to yelp reviews and michelin stars that i had stopped being i don't know the person in charge of my own deliciousness and deciding what that meant for me. So in the book, I have tasting guides and flavor wheels to help us get our words back, you know, to help us know if I'm telling you to eat diverse varieties of chocolate, like what does that even mean? And there've been so many, I think, books that say, do this, like ferment your own food, grow your own herbs, roast your own pig, bake your own bread. And I don't have those tools. And I don't have the desire in large order to do those things, but I do have a desire to really love my chocolate. So I wanted to create the kind of book where, you know, people would feel empowered to do that and to understand what that would even mean and then to define that for themselves. So it's really about, at the end of the day, for me, like being curious, being grateful, and then being empowered to do the things that are best for, you know, for what we need in our lives. So we're seeking salvation through our taste buds. We're seeking celebration. I don't know if this will save us per se, but I think it will support us and nurture us. I mean, I could speak for myself. It will make me better.
I've spent 15 years now talking about social and environmental issues, and a lot of time it comes down to write your elected official environmental stuff it's like turn off the light walk put on a sweater they all were born out of scarcity or they were born out of a sense I mean I feel this now with every phone call I'm making in the wake of this election does this matter do I have power are they listening to me and I would say the one place where I feel agency is like in what I put in my mouth and in how I choose to consume it and where I choose to buy these foods. It's small, but this is what every great movement is built on, all of these small acts. So if each of us decides, you know, to support that local roaster, like what is the multiplier effect of that? If each of us decides to reach for that craft chocolate or to turn toward our local microbrewery like what do those decisions do collectively and I think I mean we can see right here in Pittsburgh what happened the transformation happens it happens slowly it happens over time but it happens meal by meal it happens seed by seed it happens beer by beer and you know what it means is us engaging and I can think of no easier way you know than to engage with the world than to like drink a delicious beer or celebrate with a great coffee so so for me this isn't this is an authentic genuine movement but it is one that is born of joy and that reaps tremendous benefit through I guess connection more than anything else thank you so much Simran this has been really enlightening thank you really appreciate this time for more soundbite visit our archives at www.pghcitypaper.com or subscribe to City Paper Podcasts on iTunes Come along with me as I explore Pittsburgh foods, whether that means visiting heritage breed turkeys or trekking through the forest in search of chanterelle mushrooms. Until next time, go out and have yourself a food adventure.